You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Okay, welcome everyone to this uh, Carnegie event on Sudan in conflict. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to remind you to turn <clears throat> off your cell phones. Uh, that includes the vibrate mode as well. Uh, my name is Fred Wary. I'm a senior associate uh, in the Middle East program, uh, and we're really del- delighted to, to host this event uh, today on one of the continent's most intractable uh, conflicts. Uh, border security negotiations are underway if you're following Sudan, uh, and this is a really opportune time to delve into the structural, social, and political, and economic roots uh, of this long-running conflict. Uh, and we're delighted to have a, a lineup of speakers, of experts, uh, to help us uh, do that. Um, we're going to start out with uh, uh, Marina Ottaway, a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment, who really works at the intersection of the Arab and African worlds. Uh, she's published a paper on uh, Sudan's many conflicts that really frames it from a multidimensional uh, analysis, looking at the, at the multiple factors uh, behind this, this conflict. And her co-author, May Sadani, is in the back somewhere to provide uh, reinforcements uh, if, if needed. <laughs> um, that's, she's going to start out and sort of set the context uh, for, for the Sudan conflict. Uh, then we're going to be followed by uh, policy practitioners, uh, two long-standing hands of, of Africa, um, Ambassador Alan Gulti at the Woodrow Wilson Center, uh, former British ambassador to Sudan, uh, will provide his, his uh, experiences. And we're delighted to have as well Ambassador Princeton Lyman, the U.S. Special Envoy uh, to Sudan as well. Uh, so with that, I'm going to give uh, our speakers about 10 minutes uh, each. Uh, and Marina, please start off. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, what I'm going to try and provide is uh, a bird's eye view of the multiple conflicts that are afflicting the Sudan at this point. Uh, pretty much what I uh, what we did in the paper, which is uh, which is out there. Uh, <clears throat> The situation, uh, you know, not to, uh, it's very difficult to describe the situation in Sudan right now in any other ways than saying it's a dismal situation. The hope that existed for a time that first dated the uh, the comprehensive peace agreement would lead, after an interval of six years, would lead either to a solution of the conflict with the two parts of the Sudan staying together as a governable one country uh, with, uh, you know, where everybody agreed on the rules of the game, or that the country would split in two peacefully, just did not come to pass. The country did, uh, uh, the, the referendum uh, made it clear what actually had been clear for a long time, that there was no willingness in the South to stay, uh, to stay in a united Sudan, but unfortunately, the next step did not take place. That is, the, the, uh, the split of the country was did not take uh, take, uh, place in a peaceful manner and soon led to a lot of conflict. Uh, Now why the conflicts? What are the roots of this conflict? And I think there are reasons, what I'd like, what I would argue is that there are reasons that have to do with the way the, uh, uh, the agreement was implemented and so on. And I would really leave 
uh, my colleagues here who are much more knowledgeable than I am on the details of this to discuss more about it. But also that the reasons for the, uh, for the failure, essentially, of, this, uh, of the separation to take place in a more peaceful manner is the fact that it is, uh, and this may be a very uh, pessimistic view on my, on my side, but it, it's almost impossible for countries that have been at war for a very long time to really settle down. In uh, in a peaceful manner, particularly when leaders, when countries are led by leaders who have been at war for most uh, for most of their life. Keep in mind that the Sudan has been at war with a very brief interval ever since it became independent. In fact, that there were signs of conflict even before it became independent. And after such a, and after a period of decade, it's not easy to people to settle down for leaders to settle down to deal with the problem of peace rather than to deal with the problems of war. So that I would argue that there is a built-in problem uh, uh, the, in, the, in the sense in countries to settle down after long periods of war. We have seen it, for example, we saw it earlier in, uh, in Ethiopia, when uh, just to stay in the Horn of Africa, where Eritrea uh, separated from Ethiopia. And although the separation took place on the basis of a mutual agreement, in fact, the two countries were at war just a few, uh, just a few years later. So I would argue there are four main problems in the case of the Sudan that expect this, uh, uh, that, that explain this, uh, 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 w what is happening now and what happened. First of all, there is a very major problem of two countries sharing one major source of revenue, uh, the, uh, which is bound to be, uh, uh, to be a problem. Uh, both countries, both uh, uh, North and South Sudan, have the potential for developing balanced economies, for having enough resources to, uh, you know, to, to develop real economies. The fact is that the potential is not the reality. And in reality, what the two countries have in terms of quick access to revenue with which to govern the country and to tackle their own problems is the oil revenue. Uh, the, Sunen, uh, the northern part of the country is, in fact, in a sense, it's economically worse off now than it was before oil was discovered, in the sense that, yes, it has had more revenue. It has been able to do some things it would not have been able to do otherwise. But it has neglected uh, uh, many sectors of its economy. The uh, agriculture has declined, for example. So that it's a country that suffers from the so-called Dutch disease in a very, in a very major way. The South, there was never much investment in anything. So that, again, whatever potential is there is a potential and it's not a reality. So the issue of how you share the, uh, uh, the uh, not so much how you share the oil revenue, because a decision was made on how uh, the oil revenue is going to stay with, uh, you know, the country where the oil wells are situated, which means that 75% is going to stay in the south and that 25% is uh, roughly is going to stay in the north. The problem is, how is the north Sudan going to make up for the lost revenue? And part of the answer is through the pipeline, through the revenue that the south is going to pay for its oil transiting through the pipeline. And a major problem has existed from the beginning on the 
sharing capacity of the two countries to agree on what the transit fees should be. So there is a major, major bone of contention here. The second bone of contention is the border between the north and the south. And again, there are two ways of looking at the border issue. One is simply to say, well, there is a border that was established way back by the, you know, a line that was drawn by the, uh, by the British under the time of the, 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 the Anglo-Egyptian uh, condominium. And there are parts of this border that have not been, uh, uh, that have never been very clear. Like all colonial uh, boundaries, they have, uh, there are a lot of missing pieces, if you want. But there is another much more fundamental issue that is in between the north and the south and the border regions, there are populations that are not convinced that uh, they should be in the part, that they really belong to the part of the country where uh, they are. Uh, uh, officially or legally placed. There are parts of the population of the Duma Mountains of, uh, uh, of uh, South Kordofan that are not convinced that they should be there. The population of Abie is very divided, technically in the north, as was supposed to have a referendum that never had, very divided about where they belong. There are people who are now officially in the northern part, in North Sudan, and I keep on calling them the northern Sudan, the north and the south, because talking about the Sudan and the uh, uh, Republic of the South Sudan just makes for uh, tremendous confusion. Uh, but the, uh, there are people in the north who fought alongside the south in the past and who really feel, much, uh, you know, are at least ambivalent about where they should be. So there are, uh, the problem of the boundary it's not simply a question of setting up a commission to delineate the market boundary where the boundary is missing. It's a real problem of the identity of people, where they want to be, what, what they expect. So this is the, uh, th these are the first two problems, essentially, the, the oil issue, the revenue issue, and the, the boundary issue. But in addition, and to me, that in some ways, it's even more important, or not more important, but it's probably the explanation why the other two conflicts can, are so difficult to settle. And it is that these are two countries, as I said before, that have always been at war. I mean, they have been at war in the living memory of most of the people who are alive now, essentially. Most people have not known anything else. And in a sense, settling these issues, I would argue, means to go back to try to tackle problems that, are, uh, that they have no experience in tackling. And that, in a way, there is a degree, and I know I'm sticking my neck out on uh, seeing this, but uh, in saying this, but I'll say it all the same. I think there is a degree of comfort in in war activities that both sides are extremely familiar with. Uh, let me. Uh, uh, what are these problems? And let me start with the South. I would argue that the South has enormous. Un uh, uh, a problem of nation building that it's almost impossible to overcome. The South has never been developed. The one of the problems, uh, the, the, the main problem between the North and the South for, was from, uh, from the beginning, was that the South was a neglected area. So that the South really has very little, not only in terms of physical infrastructure, everybody talks about a few miles of paved roads that exist in the South, but also has very little in terms of administrative infrastructure. I mean, it has has always been, uh, has been uh, always been very lightly administered, and to try to build a country, to try to build a political system 
under these conditions, it's very, very difficult. I would argue that perhaps I know there is all sort of there are all sort of interventions, all sort of aid agencies, all sort of NGOs operating in the South Sudan. But in many ways, I think South Sudan has received uh, probably less help in nation building than almost any other country. Uh, under those conditions. Let me give you an example. When, uh, uh, it, when Namibia separated from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, South Africa, essentially, again, it was a neg- pretty much of a neglected area without much of an infrastructure and so on. There was an effort that, st- that for many years by the United Nations and by other organizations to try to train a cadre of administrators. There was the Institute for Namibia that was located in Zambia at that point that really tried to provide a cadre of administrators ready to go. Was the uh, you know was the effort adequate? Was it enough? There were all sorts of problems and so on. But there was really a systematic effort made to try and do it. I would argue that in the case of uh, South Sudan, this, there has been much less systematic work. There is aid is being provided, but I think it's much more on. It's certainly not a systematic effort at uh, nation building. You could argue perhaps it's not. Uh, such a disaster because it's not that the international record of nation building is is so brilliant after all. But the fact is that this is a country with huge problems. And in many ways, it's easier to uh, not to even try to tackle this problem and instead to be distracted by the problem of the relations with the North. The North is much better off in many ways because, if nothing else, it has been a country. It has been the the most uh, viable part of the old United Sudan forever. It has an experience in administering itself and so on. But it has problems that I would argue are equally uh, difficult. First of all, I uh, uh, it has the problem of still having conflict pretty much all around its periphery. Certainly in the west, certainly in Darfur, certainly in the south, of course, but we pay much less attention about what's happening in the east uh, uh, on the the borders of Eritrea and so on, where there is also a lot of unhappiness and a lot of unrest. So essentially, this is a country that despite having lost a very large chunk of its own territory, it's still at war. The conflicts have, uh, around its periphery have not uh, have not uh, ceased yet. So again, huge daunting problem of how to settle those problems, and I think there is no way of settling those problems without a new political structure for the north or uh, for the north of the Sudan. So there is uh, there is that uh, that issue is there uh, is very very serious. Secondly, I think the Sudan, the North Sudan, at this point has truly an old and tired leadership. Uh, I was very struck, and uh, let me just put it in a very, uh, you know, on a very personal note. Uh, I was in the uh, I was in Khartoum uh, in the fall last year, and I had not been there for many years, essentially. And I start talking to people about who am I going to see and so on. And there are three names that everybody, you know, there are some people that everybody told me you, I absolutely had to talk to. 
And they were the same people I talked to the last time I was there over 10 years ago. I mean, there is something very distressing about the lack of the renewal of leadership. I think you all know whom I'm talking about. I'm, not, I'm talking Sadiq uh, al-Madi. I'm talking about Hassan Turabi. Of course, Omar Bashir himself is hardly, a, uh, is hardly a young man and so on. But essentially, there is this sense of the lack of renewal of the <coughs> political leadership. And this lack of renewal also means that they, they bring to these issues the old mentality, the old approaches, the old, uh, the old way of uh, looking at things. If I can add a footnote, they all talk about each other as being very old, which makes it very funny because they are all more or less contemporaneous, and they are very old. There is no doubt, there is no doubt about that. So that essentially, we, although the problems of the North are very different from the problems of the South, we have the same issue of the uh, the same issue of that in many ways it's easier to turn to external conflict, to the conflict with the other country, than to try to tackle the domestic problems. I just want to raise one issue that I, that which I hope we can come back uh, uh, later on, and that is the question of what can the United, uh, what can the international community do under these circumstances? Because, or are we doing the right things? Because what I see in many ways is the fact that. that you know, we are trying to remobilize, and I think we'll hear a lot more from Princeton about uh, this, the old approaches. We are trying to intervene once again. We are trying to, uh, and this is a very broad we. I mean, it's not necessarily the, but the surrounding countries, the, uh, the you know, various organizations and so on, try to, uh, uh, to renew the mediation effort, so to try to intervene again and so on. And I am wondering whether we have come to the point where interventions are becoming counterproductive. In other words, that, that there is an, that, that we are encouraging the two governments not to take responsibility for what they are doing and allowing them essentially to hope that somebody else will put will uh, solve the problem for them, that they'll get out of their own, uh, uh, of this, of the mess that they have put themselves in. I know it's a very difficult thing to say, to even raise the issue that perhaps, you know, we should let them uh, uh, sort it out themselves. I realize what the problems are. I realize that there are people who are getting killed. We realize that there are populations that are really suffering because of this situation. But the question is, can we really prevent uh, these problems by interventions at this point? So let me stop here. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Golti. Well, <coughs> Marina said the situation was dismal. I'd have said that it was dire. But <laughs> it was ever thus in, in Sudan. I first went there in 1972. Khartoum and Juba in that year uh, were bereft of almost everything that, uh, that would, would approach uh, normal life. Uh, it was subsistence. Uh, if you went to Sudan, as I did again in 1988, uh, you had a raging civil conflict, uh, a really incompetent government, all compounded by movement of people driven by floods and, and uh, uh, starvation uh, from the West and so on. But somehow, those past problems were overcome. The Sudanese found a way to talk to each other and, and agree on some way forward. 
you know, it reminds me a bit of, of what Churchill is supposed to have said uh, about the Americans. They can be relied upon to do the right thing once they've exhausted all the alternatives. <laughs> and I think we might take the same view of the Sudanese. Anyway, I counsel us all to be optimistic and positive. Uh, I note that Nial Deng in Addis Ababa a couple of days ago uh, said much the same thing. We must be optimistic. When I was leading the British team in the, in the uh, Naivasha negotiations, uh, I told my team that we had to exude relentless optimism. And invariably, within about an hour, one of the team would say to me, Alan, where's the relentless optimism? Because I would be tearing my hair over this or that misfortune. <coughs> Marina sent me an exam paper. That's why I'm going more slowly than she did, because it's more, more difficult to answer the, a specific question. And the, the question is, why in the end the CPA and all other international processes could not secure a successful transition? And I'm going to focus on the CPA, which I know best, and go through one or two points which I think have a bearing on the problems that Princeton is still wrestling with um, today. The first point Marina has already touched on, peace can only be made by the Sudanese, not by the international community or by an international process. The Sudanese are condemned to live as neighbors. Uh, they must find a way to do so in relative uh, harmony. Whatever the political architecture uh, of the Sudan or Sudans. That happened in the uh, Addis Agreement, the, the negotiations that led up to that agreement in 1972, and it happened in the CPA process whereby the uh, beginning of 2004, the two delegation leaders, with or without uh, uh, some of their teams, were meeting directly without um, even the mediators being present. And why did it come about that they were able to make peace in that way? A number of factors, widespread war weariness among the ordinary people, among the fighting people, and so on. Secondly, the leaders on both sides had recognized as early as 1995, uh, when I established it firsthand from both of them, that no military victory was possible. Thirdly, there was an agreed basis for a deal, and that was, in brief, one country, two systems. And fourthly, there was uh, international attention, or at least some international attention. The United States, the Troika were engaged, and the EGAD process had been re-energized. Now, most, if not all, of these conditions, mutatis mutandis, apply today, except that, as Marina indicated, all the parties, and I include the, the uh, opposition north and south, seem to be appealing to the international community to intervene rather than talking to, still less negotiating with, each other. And it's worth observing, too, that nobody has any clear or good idea about how to reach a new s political settlement within Sudan. I mean by that North Sudan in this case. The opposition, the SRF, uh, can rally behind a cry of regime change, but they've not been able to give the slightest indication of how they would deal with the economic problems, how they would settle the disputes with the South that Marina has touched on, and how to divide among the various uh, parties which make up the opposition and their areas a much smaller economic cake. 
Everybody wants more for his or her area, but there is less to go around. Where is the more going to come from? Nobody has answers to this. So the problems in that sense are really intractable and difficult. Now, going back quickly to the CPA, uh, I think Marina's question rather implies that it, it was wholly unsuccessful. That's not so. It achieved quite a lot. Uh, for the interim period, at least, peace, separation of forces, the Sudanese army withdrew from the south, the SPLA from the east. Secondly, it saw the creation of an autonomous government in the south, which was adequately funded, if not perfectly, in accordance with the agreement, through the ship through the sharing of oil revenues. Elections were held throughout the country, however flawed, and the southern referendum was held on time. Those quite considerable achievements if you look back to the 1990s or 2002 when nobody thought that any agreement at all would be possible, still less implemented. So I would argue that we shouldn't knock the CPA, that much of the criticism of it was, is unjustified, Clever people often say it wasn't comprehensive. It was actually, in the meaning of the, of the act, comprehensive in that it dealt with all the issues between the government and the SPLMA. That is to say, not only the south-north questions, but the questions of the three areas as well. It's criticized because other stakeholders were excluded. There were very practical reasons for that. If you, uh, as Jeff Millington and I had said, uh, sat through uh, interminable, very difficult sessions with the two parties, the idea of having more parties would have appalled uh, you as it did uh, General Sumbewa. It was just very difficult to reach uh, the CPA. The whole, whole Machakos process started, remember, nine years after EGAD had started the mediation. That sets the current AU efforts in some sort of perspective. But you can, with hindsight, and I stress with hindsight, criticize the CPA because it was based on the one country, two systems uh, formula and, by extension, the commitment to make unity attractive. Though there was a secession option sufficiently far down the road for the North not to uh, jib at it, secession as such would not have been negotiable in 2002 or even in 2005. So the CPA made provisions for government of Sudan during the interim period, but none at all for the contingency of a possible southern vote for secession. That's why these issues uh, are now bedeviling uh, negotiators and mediators because the, the, nobody was prepared to argue what the terms should be uh, on which the South Sudan would secede. Then the three areas, Blue Nile, Nuba Mountains and Abyei, of course looked much less difficult in the context of one Sudan. After all, what does it matter whether Abyei is, is in one administrative division of the country or another? It makes a tremendous difference if it's, if it's on one side or the other of an international border, especially if the border is, is going to be heavily defended and policed and so on. Uh, so those, those issues became clearly, as we know, much, much more difficult with secession. And it's easy to forget that as Khartoum in particular had gambled on yet another autonomy deal with a unity vote, 
and didn't get it, it now feels snubbed, even cheated by its erstwhile SPLA partners and under pressure to concede a whole lot of other points on the border, uh, Abyei and so on. Uh, and it seems as, as, as uh, Princeton will correct me, but it seems as though they've decided to draw a line in the sand and say this, this is where we stand. We, st we, we accept the outcome of the referendum, but we're not going to make any more concessions. And from a government's point of view, as we can all recognize in our own countries, as concessions are unpopular in the North, and the government has come under very heavy criticism from uh, Marina's old friends uh, for making uh, as many concessions as it did in the CPA at all, then there's the political case for being more accommodating is very weak. Even so, despite all these difficulties, the unity option and the CPA intentions could have worked but for uh, events, primarily the death of Garang, which removed not only the main advocate of Southern unity just weeks after the, uh, he'd taken office as vice, vice president, but the one Southern figure whom Bashir and Ali Osman really trusted. And the SPLM, uh, as you know, were there, thereafter inclined more and more to go with their hearts and the emotions of the people and move towards secession. So neither they nor the NCP uh, really acted on the uh, making unity attractive part of the uh, CPA. Each assumed that it was the responsibility of the other and they fell into a more antagonistic mode rather than the partnership, which would have been essential uh, if the CPA were to work. I used to tell Garing and anyone else who would listen during the negotiations that the agreement we could all see coming would be 5% of the task, only 5%. The re it would be a basis on which Sudanese could continue to work uh, to find a way of running their affairs better. Uh, but as you know, they didn't do so nor did the international community. Uh, we too collectively took our eye off the ball. We didn't accept any responsibility for making unity attractive, even those of us who'd witnessed the, the signing of the CPA. Most uh, more or less openly indulged their preference for the South and eventual secession. Attention was switched to Darfur, as early as January 2005, the criticism, the drumbeat of, uh, of criticism of Khartoum at that point uh, continued, leading to the halting of work on debt relief, which I'd started two years before and which was resumed, I think, last year or the year before, having wasted five years. It led to the non-delivery for domestic political reasons of the limited goodies that Senator Danforth and his team had promised to Khartoum. Furthermore, that all of course compounds Khartoum's suspicion and reluctance of, to engage in any international uh, process now. That was compounded by slow delivery of aid, no peace div delivered dividends for the southern people, neglect of the three areas, there was aid promised for the South, but not specifically for Blue Nile and the Nuba Mountains. 
uh, it was compounded by feeble SPLM uh, performance, politically speaking, in the Nuba Mountains, though uh, the Blue Nile was better. And there were problems over Abyei stemming for uh, what I regard as a wrong-headed uh, Abyei protocol uh, imposed on the exhausted parties by the Americans. But the author of the lead author of the protocol is uh, carefully not catching my eye, so I will say no more about that. <laughs> and finally, the, the, and this is another important point, we imposed a really cumbersome and generally in, ineffective peacekeeping force, the UNMIS, uh, which took away, this is Marina's point again, took away from the parties responsibility of policing their own agreement and their own, their own peace. In the Nuba Mountains in 2002, Swiss Americans brokered a much leaner system, hard to operate, but a joint military commission formed by the two parties with a very, very light overlay of international presence to see fair play. It worked much better. In 1972, the Peace Commission was run by the two parties without any international involvement. And for a while, at least, it worked much better. So very briefly, what lessons may be drawn from all this? Uh, first, as we I think all uh, can all agree, there are no easy answers. Second, it bears repeating that peace has to be made and implemented by the Sudanese. Both sides can and will prosper if they cooperate. Both will suffer, like as they are doing now, if they fail to do so. Sooner or later, Sudanese leaders must realize this. Outsiders can help them come to this realization and mediate. But in my view, they should not take sides. They should talk, talk, talk to all parties, and that includes the NCP leadership. It includes, for this audience, sending a resident US ambassador to Khartoum. And they should encourage them all to treat the other Sudanese parties with respect. That's one of the real problems of the, of the South, and not being treated by Khartoum with respect, on the basis of their common interests. And they do have common interests. It follows, of course, that we shouldn't encourage any tendency on any of the parties, Darfur rebels are foremost among this, to look to international intervention to solve their problems. They will have to negotiate their own solutions. So we can't uh, impose solutions. What should we be aiming to do? Encourage the Sudanese to move towards first a cessation of hostilities, policed by the parties. Without that, we will not be able easily to deliver humanitarian aid and there will not be a conducive atmosphere for negotiating other issues. A final point. All this is a matter for leaders. We're talking about the leaders on both sides. But our interest is not in who gains power in Sudan, but it's how it's used, and in particular how it's used to help the people of Sudan and of South Sudan. I met only one Sudanese leader in 40 years who showed the slightest concern for his people. It was the late Yusuf Kua who was the SPLA leader in the Nuba Mountains until he died in 2001, I think it was. I first met him in Nairobi. I was expecting him to appeal for support and criticize Khartoum. And the first thing he said is, I need 3,000 shots of measles vaccine for the children. 
And that's what we ought to be spending our money and effort on, helping the people. Thank you, Alan. <clears throat> and thank you, everybody, uh, for being here uh, and for all your interest. Marina, thank you, Fred. Uh, and I commend the report for those who have not had a chance to read it. It does summarize a great deal of the issues that, uh, that we've been talking about. As I listen to Marina uh, go through them all, I now know why I don't sleep so well at night. Uh, <laughs> because they are complex and interrelated issues. I want to get back, I, and I will come back to the fundamental question you raised and which Alan talked about, which is what is the role of the outsiders, the international community in this? But let me just make a few comments <clears throat> on the situation and, and some of the problems. One thing that Marina pointed out that I think it's very fundamental as you watch this process or participate in it, and that is the effect of basically 40 years of, of war. And out of it comes a deep, deep sense of anger, frustration, bitterness, memories, etc., which at times seems outside the room and you don't worry about it, and then somebody says something and it blows up. And you realize that down underneath still are deeply unresolved emotional issues from all those years of war. And they, they don't go away easily. Yes, in a sophisticated way, you can sign agreements and you can say we're all going to live together happily. I think they must have signed a half a dozen non-aggression agreements in the last two years that I've been working on this. They don't mean anything. Because until the two parties really come to a position where they respect each other enough and, and some of these memories fade, there's going to be limits on the relationship. And it spills over into almost everything it's done. There's a second factor at work here that arises out of some of the things that Alan talked about, etc. When they, they came out of the CPA, yeah, we saw this even before the referendum and the independence of South Sudan. What struck us, you know, I, I had a whole list of all the issues, and everybody here knows them, that had to be resolved before the South became independent. I mean, how could they become independent if you didn't solve borders, RBA, and, and oil? I mean, everybody, you have to do that, of course. But it didn't happen. The South became independent. None of those issues were resolved. The question is, why didn't that happen? In part, because each side felt they were going to be in a better position afterwards than before. That's a terrible situation for diplomacy. But the point is that the North said, South is going to be so weak, so difficult to govern, they're going to be sorry, and the West is going to be sorry. They ever supported independence, and they're going to be in our hands in terms of resolving all these issues. And the South said, once we become independent, we'll have respect, we'll have international backing, and we'll own that 70% of the oil, and now we'll be in a stronger position. Well, it's an interesting set of concepts, but it doesn't make for attitudes to let's get these issues settled, because each side is sort of waiting for that advantage to occur. And what has happened over time, and I'm simplifying an awful lot of stuff because of time, what's happened is that now you're in a position where each side is waiting for the other to crumble or to weaken. Uh, people write, and it's so popular in the media, to say that the fight is over oil. I, it is, the fight isn't over oil. 
that what's happening in Sudan and South Sudan is oil is a weapon that each side is using against the other. The South says, we've got the oil, and they've shut down production, if you know the history of that. And the North is going to need that oil so badly, that, and the fees of the thing and all the rest, that sooner or later, in return for oil and all the rest, we'll get ABA, we'll get borders, etc. Grant Park. The North says, hey, we lost 50, 60% of our budget, but they lost 98% of their budget. They're going to crumble and pretty soon come back to us and come to us. So now you have both sides committing, in effect, mutual economic suicide. That is saying, we're going to go without a settlement, whether it's on oil or settling some of these conflicts, etc., because we're stronger we can resist it. The South says we suffered for 40 years. We can suffer longer. The North says we're more developed. We can suffer longer. And, and when you get into the negotiations, the question is, do they really want to resolve them and get to an agreement? And there's a real question about that. They, of course, all say they want to get to an agreement. But underneath is, A, I don't like and trust the other side. And B, if I wait long enough, they will crumble, and I will be in the advantage, it's more advantaged position. And that's the dynamic, quite frankly, when you deal with any of these issues, borders, security, etc. The other aspect of this which affects the negotiations is, as, as Marie has pointed out, Marina has pointed out, the, the ongoing struggle inside Sudan, the north, over the internal conflicts that are going on, and particular in southern Kordofan and Blue Nile, the Nuba Mountains area in Blue Nile. Um, because to Khartoum, this is a fundamental security issue. And they have chosen to define this issue as one that is largely the result of South Sudan's support to those uh, who are fighting them because of all the connections from the civil war between those two groups, rather than saying this is an internal political problem that goes to the heart of how Sudan is going to be governed, whether it's with dealing with southern Kordofan and Blue Nile or Darfur or the east, the whole question of how you deal with a still diverse country in, in, in the politics of Sudan. And that has carried over into the current negotiations uh, which I'll describe in a minute, because Sudan is saying this is our fundamental security issue and until it's resolved, we're not going to deal with South Sudan on the other issues. Where we are now in the negotiations is, uh, is a new phase of international uh, involvement, if you will. I mean, there's been a, a lot for a long time, but... Um, and there's been, as many of you know, the Africa Union high-level panel headed by former uh, South African President Thabo Mbeki, which is charged by the international community, it's interesting, an implementation panel uh, to implement all the agreements of the CPA or post-CPA, and they have, in effect, been the convener of all the negotiations. Um, and that has been going on for some time, with a little success here, a little success there. But with the situation almost getting out of hand uh, most recently with much more clashes on the border and the threat in the eyes of the international community that the two sides might actually go back to full-scale war. And what's happened is that the international community has come together in a much more 
a specific way than, than has been the case for some time. And the initial step was the Africa Union. Uh, the Africa Union Peace and Security Council, which is their equivalent, if you will, of the UN Security Council, met on April 24th, and instead of what you normally get, please, you, you two should get together and live in peace and harmony, they came out with a very specific mandated roadmap with very tight timelines, perhaps too tight timelines, but it was striking. It wasn't just you two get together. This is exactly what you got to do because your conflict is a threat to the peace and security of Africa. And all of us around you are not immune to what's going on there. That conflict can spread. It spills over the refugees, all the rest. A week later, May 2nd, the UN Security Council unanimously adopted the AU communique and added their own timelines and said, and this was remarkable because you had the Russians and Chinese voting for this, that if in 90 days they hadn't settled all the issues between them, the council would consider sanctions on the parties. And this was extraordinary to get this unanimous vote from the Security Council. Now, what that has done has injected into the negotiations a degree of urgency. It has not solved the problems, the fundamental problems. But it has created a sense of pressure on the parties and a sense of urgency because suddenly the whole international community and nobody can run in one side or the other and get help from, from friends is saying enough already because this is a threat to African peace and security, this is a threat to international peace and security, and we can't just stand by and let you two guys go at it for time and time again. Now let me get to Marina's question because I think it's a very fundamental one. And it's one that, that comes up constantly in the work of the Africa Union panel and in the work of all of us. And it's, it's the difference that I would call between facilitation and mediation. Facilitation is where you bring the parties together. You do everything to create an atmosphere in which the two parties ultimately take responsibility and solve their problems. And you help them in a thousand different ways. And just to make it. Background, I wrote a book on how we did this in South Africa. Okay, and, and the responsibility was Mandela and de Klerk, and they took that responsibility, and they drove the process, and they did it. The question is, is President Bashir and President Keir Mandela and de Klerk? And you have to look at the record of 20 years, and you have to say, doesn't look like it. They've met several times with the idea that they were going to cut through some of these differences and instruct their people and take hard decisions, and they have not done it once. Because of all the reasons I mentioned, the deep mistrust and its understandings and, and, and lingering anger and suspicion and, 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 and all the rest. So then the question is, if you leave the parties to themselves, will they do anything but go back to war and then you have all the international peace and security concerns or do you come closer to mediation? I think we deal with this all the time. Uh, I think the pressure has to be on from the international community, but in the end, if the parties don't accept what comes out of it, it won't last very long. Now let me just say some things about the positive aspects of, of this situation because... 
Sometimes you've got to have, what'd you say? Optimism? Relentless optimism. Okay. Relentless. There are relentless optimism. There are some aspects of this. And I'll tell you what, there was a big crisis uh, recently, as many of you know, when the border clashes that have been going on really for a year, and they're related to the conflict in the two areas, uh, got bigger because South Sudan uh, went and occupied one of the most strategic areas for Sudan, the Hegling area and the oil fields, which had been providing with the split in the oil, it was one of the main sources of oil still for Sudan, for the north. And it was the first time in this low level of conflict that one side had struck at a strategically vital area of the other. Oil facilities had been more or less off the table. They clashed on the border, but no one bombed an oil well, no one acted. This was seemed to the world to be a game changer. And of course, the world all rushed out to do something, and including me. And what what struck me was I got to Juba and, and this was going on and I got I had an interview with one of the journalists and he said, Do you think they're gonna go to war? And I said, Look, they're at war. Now, this is was interesting because I got a lot of blowback, both in Juba and Khartoum. People saying, No, don't don't say that. We don't want to go back to war. Don't call this war. This is a clash, but none of us want to go back to full scale war. We've had it. We did it. We did it for 40 years. We know go, if we go back to all-out all war, it's disastrous. I flew to Khartoum. I got the same thing. Please, don't call this war. We haven't gone to war. We are not at war. We had this terrible clash, but we're not. Now, to me, it was important because the two sides at least had drawn something of a line. didn't mean they couldn't stumble into war, but neither side is looking really now to all-out war as a military solution between them. That doesn't mean they're going to not take advantage of clashes here or there or use oil pressure or something like that. But I think we're not, even though we say in the international community, you know, we're worried about this, I think that's one thing the two sides have decided not to do. The other is that the economic situation, which is bad, is hopefully a source of, of, of reality for the two sides. Both are suffering quite badly. South Sudan lost 98% of its, of its revenue. And its alternatives, building a new pipeline or something like that out of the south, are three, four years away. Uh, and uh, the country is as underdeveloped as Marina said. And this is no longer a liberation army. This is a government. They can't just say, well, we suffered for 40 years, and we can suffer for three, four more. There's got to be more realism there. But Khartoum also has to face the fact that they're in serious economic problems. If you watch the exchange rate, just recently a, a kind of de facto devaluation because the, the exchange rate had gone from 2.95 to almost 6. Food prices are going up very dramatically, fuel shortages, uh, great shortages of foreign exchange, etc. And, you know, the country is saying, well, you know, we can stick it out. We, we don't need an oil agreement until we get this, that, and the other thing. And you have to wonder whether in time people will come back for practical reasons to, to a better uh, situation and even an oil agreement. What I would say, just to, to conclude, is 
what can we expect? What, what should the international community try for? I think we all aimed, and you see it in the Africa Union high-level panel documents, we all looked for that grand, we're all going to live together in peace and harmony between the two countries. You know, bygones are bygones, and, and we love each other, and we've all been Sudanese, and we're brothers, and it's, it's amazing they are, because many of the people at the negotiating tables have gone to school together, their wives have gone to school together, they've known each other, but they've also fought each other. But we looked for that grand, beautiful thing that would say, these are two states who will live together. I don't think they're going to get there for some time. And I think our objectives, perhaps for the time being, have to be much more limited. One is to keep them from going back to full-scale war, because that's disastrous, not just for the Sudanese, it's disastrous for the whole Horn of Africa. And, and we already have major refugee problems from the fighting that's going on. Uh, second, um, some kind of modus vivendi along the border, which is what the discussions going on in Addis are about right now some kind of way of keeping those clashes from getting out of hand, whether it's with the official line of a demilitarized line and some verification, but something that just limits the, the conflict between them. Um, and I'll give you an example of the, sec of the problem of Abia. Abia is a is a long-standing conflict between the two, and they didn't have the referendum, etc. The South invaded it last year and occupied it, and we spent forever getting them to withdraw. But what we have now is not a permanent settlement of ABA, but an agreement that it's going to be jointly administered until its status is finally determined. And it's complicated, but there's an uh, ABA Joint Oversight Committee. There's another, <laughs> another UN peacekeeping operation there, but from what very tough Ethiopians who are doing a wonderful job. And for the moment, you don't have war in ABA. We almost had it last year. We don't. These are imperfect steps. They are not resolutions of final issues. Sooner or later, the countries have to get to that. Uh, and that opens the door to debt relief and a lot of other things. But I think we, if we can, we, the whole international community and the two parties themselves, can move toward a situation where things don't get worse, where they don't stumble back into conflict, and where they can eventually get to more pragmatic decisions and relationships with each other, uh, I think for the time being, that's pretty good. In the meanwhile, one wants to encourage much more dialogue than now goes on. I am struck by the fact that the two sides almost never talk to each other unless the Africa Union panel convenes them, and that's always in Addis Ababa because they won't go to Khartoum or Juba. There is no connection between the two central banks, although they should have some. There is almost no connection between the two militaries. There is no connection between the trade ministers. In fact, there's no trade between them. There's, there's no this communications or institutional relationships between two countries that lie side by side and have so many relationships between them. Little by little, those need to be encouraged. And finally, one thing that's striking out of this process, and I scratch my head about it all the time, is that it is still a very narrow process. I went to the discussions in Addis this last week, and I looked down the table on both sides, not a single woman at the table. And in all the discussions I've been, I've never seen more than two or three women in the negotiations at any one time. 
women are not part of this process. There are strong women's organizations in both countries, but they have not been able to crack through and have an impact on the process, or much else of civil society. So when the two sides get at it and, and say, you know, I'm going to be tough and I'm going to walk out of the meeting and we can go back to war, God, how many times have they said that? I would like to hear organizations of women and civil society and others saying, no, don't you dare go back to war. We've had enough of it. So go back to the table and solve these problems. How one encourages that, it's difficult. In, in Sudan itself, it's, it's a, a quite repressive atmosphere, so it's not easy for people to do it. In South Sudan, for a lot of reasons, it, it doesn't happen either. The government doesn't invite it. But I think over time, we, if we had more of that, it would change some of this atmosphere underneath that would create over time a longer-term relationship. So let me stop there and, and, and uh, open it up. And thank Marina, Alan, and Fred, and to all of you. Thank you for the uh, compelling set of analyses. I'm going to turn it over to questions now. Uh, in the interest of time, please make sure you do ask a question and not a statement. Uh, and we're going to go in uh, groups of, of three just to speed things up. Um, so, sir, in the, in the back. Uh, and if you would, please uh, identify yourself and your uh, institutional affiliation. I debated whether I should wait, Princeton, <laughs> around, but Andrew Natsios. Um, I, I, without going through a long dissertation of what I agree with, and did, I agree with much of what you said. However, there is a, a, a little, I think, an important distinction between what's going on in the North and the South. It's very clear to me that there's a deep division in the NCP. You see members of Bashir's party attacking him in the parliament, which you never saw before, calling for investigations on corruption, demands for why the Sudanese government failed to protect Heglig, why did they lose the battle initially. Uh, and, and, and Bashir himself is running around the city with Hussein, the defense minister, who's a hardliner, as his driver. He drives him to events because he's afraid, he's afraid of assassination or of a coup. They're constantly afraid of a coup. That is not the political situation in the South. Uh, the, the UN says in June of last year that there was a de facto coup. The generals took over and the Bashir basically is not running the country. He's not making the decisions. That's why he's not involved in this. It's the hardline, radical, ultra-nationalist Islamists in the party who are making the decisions. Taha is not making the decisions. Uh, it's Bakri, Hussein... Uh, um, and a couple other real hardliners who never supported the CPA in the first place. They were always opposed to it. And so the Southerners are saying, if these guys are in charge, we're not going to get a deal. They did make some negotiating positions last year that were very reasonable in the South. They've withdrawn them, I think, because they get no response. With all due respect to the notion of us being mediators, we were not mediators the entire time in the CPA negotiations. We intervened in a very decisive way, but not publicly. I, as you know, have proposed, I'm, I'm sure neither of you support this, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I want to ask your reaction to it. The fact of the matter is the North thinks they can bomb the South into submission, and the Southerners are afraid of that, okay? And I think that's what's preventing them from the green tending. The generals say, to hell with them all, we'll just bomb them into hell, if, if necessary. And they keep buzzing Juba and all that. I think we should go back to what we had agreed to in 2008, I got the president to agree to it. So did Rich Williamson. We, two 
DOD teams were sent to this Juba to design an air defense system for the South so that the North cannot use their air force to bomb and, and to intimidate the South. I think it's, an, it's an only a defensive system. They're already armed themselves in the South. They don't need our ground weapons. We don't need us there. It, while it may take a while to implement it, it is a way of telling the North, if you persist in this use of your air force in the Nuba Mountains, or particularly uh, south of the border, they bombed Malakam. Then, it, which is an act of war. No one, people say it's an act of war for you to invade Hegley. Wasn't it an act of war to bomb southern cities that are clearly and indisputably in the south, but no one said anything. So the question is, why is it not the time to intervene to say to the northern generals who are running the country right now, we've had enough of this. You either negotiate this or we're going to give an air defense to the systems of the south and you will, be, you will not have the weapons to, to intimidate them anymore. Yes, sir. Um, David Brown was from Maine. Uh, one issue that didn't come up, uh, despite the many references to South Kordofan and Blue Nile, uh, was the question of the humanitarian emergency in South Kordofan and the Nuba Mountains. If we accept the analysis that has been put forward, that we need to let the parties deal with it themselves, or that all we can deal with is a cold peace, we need to prevent a full outbreak of war, we're leaving a lot of people, with all due respect, to Mzadaway, in a really grave risk with potential, uh, potentially hundreds of thousands of malnourished individuals and, and, and numerous deaths from starvation, depending on what happens over the next three months. And how do we deal with that situation in, in this uh, analytical frame of saying, well, we just have to prevent worse things from happening? Ma'am. Hi, I'm Arielle Weaver from uh, globalsolutions.org, and I have a question for um, Ambassador Lyman. You mentioned that um, including more women in the peace talks would definitely change the climate of these talks, and I am curious to know how um, you, you know, what specific ways you are working to include these women, um, especially in the, with the cultural bar barriers that are, that are present. Well, uh, you know, Andrew raises some, uh, uh, Andrew Nazis raises some very important questions. But, you know, uh, while the North has the advantage of, 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 of being able to bomb, the South does not have that and doesn't have a, a widespread air defense system. The way that the North uses the bombing, you'd have to have an extraordinary system to know where and when they're going to come and, and have the because the bombing has been in the Nuba Mountains, which is a whole different story. If they hit Malakal one day, they're going to hit something else 500 miles away the next day. This is not a simple thing. Second, while it, it is uh, a tactic, uh, uh, a vehicle which is very important to the North militarily, it isn't very decisive. And that has been demonstrated in two ways. One, because the South did take Egg they didn't occupy it for very long, but they demonstrated that bombing alone doesn't necessarily give North that much advantage. And in the Nuba Mountains, despite the horrific use of bombing against civilians, it's more a terror tactic than it is a strategic use of bombing. And they roll them out of the back of Antonov, so they're not even very accurate, but they are terrifying. The Nuba Mountains people continue to occupy that whole basic area. And they have not, in a whole year of this, 
uh, been driven out uh, in spite of all that bombing. So it isn't as decisive a military difference. And if we go in and add, uh, you know, a multi-year, four, five, six-year air defense system, it's it's not going to, I don't think, be the game changer. I, I respect Andrew tremendously. I don't think, though, it's it's it would be a game changer. Now, David raises, of course, a, a critical matter, and it goes to the fundamental question. Why did the international community get involved anyway? Because we are all affected. Not only peace and security, but as David pointed out, huge humanitarian crises exist in the southern Cordovan Blue Nile. We're up to maybe 100,000 refugees coming out of there, etc. You can't ignore that. You can't ignore it at all. We've been unsuccessful, as David well knows, in, in trying to get the government of Sudan to provide access to the two areas, this is where the immediate crisis is, uh, from international uh, humanitarian agencies because they don't want that international presence, and they don't trust it, uh, etc. Even though the latest proposal came from the UN, the African Union, and the League of Arab States, they still did not accept it. Uh, and uh, and there we had a lot of international pressure on them from the League of Arab States, from the African Union, from a lot of places. They didn't do it. And so we, we face a very serious humanitarian crisis. It's still on the agenda. It's turning into more and more a refugee crisis, and many of them are moving into areas which are very difficult to reach. Um, so this remains uh, a problem, and, it, and it's rightfully the, uh, the, the, on the agenda of the international community. And I did not mean to say when I said we have limited uh, objectives that that wouldn't be one of the limited objectives because you can't ignore it. Uh, but we're very frustrated by the government's uh, refusal to, to allow that kind of access, and the crisis is getting worse as we predicted as we get toward the rainy season. Comments from that? I had a lot to do with... Um, oh, I'll come back to the women's question, too. Sorry, no. you want to go first? Well, you know, I wish I had a better answer to you on that, because I've, I've met with many of the women's groups in, in both the Sudan and South Sudan, and, we, and there are various international programs with those, et cetera, and I've raised it with both delegations. And their answer is, look, these are party-to-party -party discussions. That's what the CPA was structured around. And yes, we have party members who are women. Sometimes they participate, et cetera. But that's not what the, these the negotiations aren't structured for that. Uh, I don't have a good answer to it. It's something very much on my mind and troubles me a great deal. Uh, uh, we do have a, a very active uh, interest from the, we had, there is an office, Malene uh, 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 Verveer heads uh, the, on women's rights for uh, Secretary Clinton. She's been very active with women's groups and international, uh, gosh, I always forget the name, but, uh, but Swanee Hunt's wonderful organization does. Thank you. Uh, but I'm not satisfied that it's, having the impact on the political process, and I wish I had better answers for you on that. On humanitarian access, as I discovered in the 1990s, the Sudanese government's concern has always been security. They know perfectly well that arms were run to the SPLA in the south under cover of humanitarian flights. They demanded to 
either stop flights to the particular destinations they suspected or to inspect cargoes. When they were allowed to inspect cargoes for deliveries from El Abade, there were no problems. So it seems to me that there are two options, broadly speaking, for uh, humanitarian access across borders or uh, across lines of control in the Nuba Mountains and Blue Nile. Uh, the better one is to have a, an agreement to stop firing, just to have a truce for humanitarian purposes. I helped broker one in Bahr el Ghazal in 1998, lasted for two years. It was an informal understanding, wasn't properly written down, but people stuck to it because of the international opprobrium that would have uh, encountered uh, had they violated it. Um, the other is to have some arrangement whereby uh, the aid is delivered across border by people that uh, the Sudanese can check. So aid via northern Sudan, inspected cargoes inspected by the army or whoever delivered by the Sudanese Red Crescent. But then the uh, SP, SPLMA North would be reluctant to accept that because they'd ha they have equal concerns and suspicions. So those are the issues that, uh, that uh, Princeton is, is wrestling with. Uh, it seems to me that, uh, as, as I said in my opening remarks, that um, a ceasefire is the most desirable first priority if it can be achieved. And of course, the SPLM North would have to be engaged in that too. And everybody would try and exploit it in the negotiations. That's why they're so difficult. Uh, on the problem of women, I think that um, uh, you can't just say, put a woman in the negotiations like that. You have to work on, on the wider prospect of the status of women in Sudanese society, why, the wider issue, uh, over the longer term. Um, the organization I'm associated with, um, Together for Sudan, does this with the help of, some, of Humanity United, which I'm glad to acknowledge, uh, by promoting women's education, including scholarships at the rather good, by Sudanese standards, uh, Afad University for Women in Omdurman. That, it seems to me, is an area which governments neglect because it doesn't produce quick results. And it's, it's a modest program, but it's not, it's not a, a headline stealer. After all, if you're sponsoring a girl through university, it's going to take five years or six years in Sudanese terms. Uh, there are no quick results. The politician who approved the program is going to be out of office by the time that uh, the, the girls even graduated, let alone appeared on a, uh, in a position of responsibility. Nevertheless, uh, this is an area where we can help uh, simply by seizing opportunities to uh, promote women's education at every level, not just university education, women's literacy classes. Illiteracy in the South is appallingly high. Illiteracy in the North is hardly, is hardly impressive. Um, supporting schools, the schools in both countries are inadequate. The South don't have a budget for schools. The North uh, neglect schools uh, uh, for those from marginalized areas and the displaced around Khartoum. These are areas where we can help and, and really make a difference. I think the, the best use of Western soft power in, in many cases in, in Sudan would be no strings attached aid to uh, schools of all sorts. Yes, schools for girls, secondary schools, scientific equipment, books, computers. Not with, a, not with a, an expectation that the 
the students, the girls, are going to, are going to turn pro-American, uh, they may well not do so. When I made, made this point the other day, somebody uh, put his hand up and said, we'd pour millions into Ethiopia and the students are as anti-American as ever. Well, <laughs> that's, that's the risk you take, but it shouldn't be the objective. The objective is, is what our questioner said, to, to get more women involved in public life. Because as one Sudanese woman told my wife, men want power, women want peace. I just wanted to make a uh, comment. Uh, Princeton said, you know, when you were talking about the goals of the international community, you said in the short run is to keeping the conflict from degenerating again into full-scale war. But in a sense, the one other question is by <clears throat> aren't we playing in the hands of the two parties by making sure that it does not degenerate into full-scale war so that they can get very close to it and keep on pushing the envelope because in the end somebody will intervene. And that goes back also to the issues of the refugees because in a sense keeping the pot boiling where it's almost a full-scale war but it does not boil over does increase does uh, also increase the issue of the the suffering of the population, which I don't for a moment uh, you know dismiss. Yes, please. Uh, Lawrence Freeman from uh, African Desk at uh, ER Magazine. I think one of the problems in the CPA was the whole environment around going into the CPA. That since the NCP took power, there was a massive fanatical, zealous, anti-cartoon regime change faction in Washington and in New York, and I won't name the current elected officials who still believe in that. So there should have been a development approach of a mission of food development, which meant infrastructure and water and power to develop all of Sudan, would have been that self-interest that could have united the two countries. And I was very upset that that never happened in 20 years. So I think that's behind some of the problems CPA. I have a specific question for Ambassador Lyman, which is that I've been told by Africans in the Horn, not just Sudanese, people in Washington, people in the UN, that there's a host of American advisors in Juba, and we have some of the names, who have been egging on the South Sudanese and giving them very bad advice. And one of the reasons Sudan may have gone into Hezlik, which happened the days, two days before I left Sudan, that happened, uh, so I was aware of everything that was going on, is they're being encouraged or emboldened falsely by a group of advisors in the West. And one person told me it's everybody. It's uh, people from Europe, it's people from the donors, and it's people from Washington and people from New York. If that is true, that's pretty bad. But I also see a tilt for the first time since South Sudan has been criticized. Is there a reevaluation going on? Is this true? How do you see the problem? Because if South Sudan continues to destroy itself, then the SPLM itself is in danger of being overthrown. You, you mentioned some groups in your report. I don't think they're strong enough. But it's not just Khartoum that faces a problem, and, and they do. I was there. But also the South would face a problem, and that would be a terrible mess if that kind of advice is being coming from the United States and other Western countries. So I'd I like uh, an answer on that, please. Okay, please. Hi, my name's Ian Schwab. I work with American Jewish World Service. Just had a question about processes. Um, there's been a lot of stovepiping. There's Darfur, three areas, issues with two, between two sovereign states. Um, and I was curious if we've reached a point where 
um, panelists think that there's a need for there to be a single process that deals with all issues intra-Sudan. Does that need to include the South? How does that work? Um, what is sort of the long-term goals to um, maybe move beyond some of the, the limited objectives that can only be dealt with in these more stovepipe processes? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dan Griffin, Catholic Relief Services. In both the paper and in your presentations, you've noted that both the African Union's uh, roadmap and the subsequent UN resolution are both predicated on the threat of credible sanctions. Can you tell us what those sanctions might be or give us an opinion as to what should be included or excluded from those sanctions? You want to talk about start? We've got about five CPA. minutes. Sorry if I can get the others. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me let me uh, uh, on on the attitude. You know, as Alan mentioned, Darfur was a very important factor in the way the international community has operated over the last several years, because it it was a game changer in the sense that the uh, the relationship, certainly for the United States, but also for other Western countries, with Sudan changed because of 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 Darfur. Uh, the determination uh, that uh, genocide was being pursued, uh, the indictment coming later from the International Criminal Court, uh, this changed the relationship from what was going on in Nevasha and leading up to the CPA. And uh, it has changed that we, we don't deal directly with President Bashir as a result. That, that's a different kind of situation from the, the the process during the CPA and the role of the Troika, et cetera. And there's a very strong feelings about what went on in Darfur and accountability and all the rest, and those are important and they're significant and they're an element not only in our policy, but the policy of many, many of the of, of the Western governments. And 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 balancing that, if you will, with the need to try and promote peace and cooperation between the two countries is something we, we deal with it with every day. Uh, Lawrence, uh, there's absolutely no truth to the fact that American advisors egged uh, Juba on. On the contrary, we've had quite a long dialogue with them over some time about restraint and constraint. And when you saw the reaction, if you saw the international reaction to their move on Heglig, it was stunning in its unanimity and power. Uh, it wasn't coordinated. Everybody from the United States around the world said to Juba, this was a terrible mistake. So uh, there, there's no, no, I don't know anybody outside that was egging them on uh, to do that. There are people inside enough to do it. On, uh, your, your comment on stovepiping is very important because it, these issues obviously do relate. And you can see it uh, in the Darfur situation as some of the uh, armed groups, uh, JEM and, and uh, Mini Manawi's group, etc., have moved less to from a Darfur focus to a Sudan general focus. Uh, yes, the processes have been separate. There was a long Doha peace process, etc., on Darfur. The question is, how do you put these things together? The Africa Union panel, to some extent, has a mandate in this regard. But North-South issues have kind of overwhelmed them for a while. They were heavily involved in Darfur for a while, now less so. 
And then the, the biggest question of political transformation, particularly in Sudan, but also South Sudan has serious problems here too. How do you do that? Uh, President Mbeki was very articulate about it in his speech in Khartoum in November uh, 2010. Uh, a very bold speech and a very uh, uh, far-reaching speech about what, what had to take place in Sudan now that the South was gone, but the country remained diverse. But beyond that, there isn't a process, quite frankly, for saying to Sudan, gee, you ought to, you ought to make political change, except in the fact that in our approach to the problems, not only of Darfur, but of, of Southern Kordofan and Blue Nile, that's the essence of it. And that's why our, our response to their feeling that the only problem is South support to the SPLM North, no, it isn't. You've got a political process you've got to deal with. And it's not just in the two areas, but it's fundamental to the governing uh, uh, of, of the country. Uh, on the threat of sanctions, Mr. Corvin, uh, I have no idea. Uh, the UN has put that in, and they would have to look at it, and I'm sure it would be a subject for a great deal of, 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 of uh, discussion at the time. And they didn't try to specify. The point, though, that was delivered that was significant was that they were talking to both sides. And I think that that was significant. Well, I think Princeton has illustrated some of the questions of Mr. Schwab's in reply to Mr. Schwab, the sheer difficulty of organizing a single process. Because you, you do have national issues, but you also have local issues. And which comes first, and how do you address it? I mean, what would be rather uh, uh, useful, perhaps, is if you were to organize an amazing war game, negotiation game, where people actually played the parts, and, and those of us who are tempted by the idea of a single process would be able to see how really difficult it would be to implement. Uh, where these people, the opposition and so on, all um, come together is in uh, the idea of regime change. But regime change does not uh, of itself solve the problem. Uh, any successor is going to be uh, under immediate, very heavy political pressure <laughs> in Khartoum, for example, if he makes more concessions to the South and moves back from the position that Bashir has staked out, because Bashir is already getting criticized for being weak. So how can a successor uh, be weaker? Suppose it were the SPLM North. If they proceeded to give their erstwhile comrades in arms in the South a whole lot of concessions, they wouldn't survive uh, very long in Khartoum with the, the hostile army, the hostile militias, the hostile local people. No, it's not, a, it's not an attractive proposition. So the approach has got to be to, to uh, address as best you can the issues, if that means uh, dealing with the people who are currently in power in North or South, then uh, pragmatically I think that's what we have to do. I'm not a believer, Dan, in sanctions at all uh, in the Sudanese context. They've been tried for a long time. Uh, they've not been successful. And the people who 
lose out tend to be the ordinary people who see prices going up, things difficult to obtain, and the humanitarian community, including, I suspect, CRS, who can't operate freely uh, using a banking system, so have to run personal risks by doing their business with uh, pockets full of uh, dollars, making themselves attractive targets. It's really not, a, not an easy uh, answer. But as Princeton says, the shock administered to Juba by being lumped together with Khartoum in this context may be uh, sufficiently salutary for the question of sanctions not to have to arise. Just want to address briefly the issue of a comprehensive solution versus stove piping. I think the only comprehensive, what a comprehensive solution would require is a change not only in the nature of the two regimes, but also in the nature of all the opposition groups. In other words, you'd have to have a, uh, you know, the, the embracing of the concept of compromise or the concept of democracy, and not just on the part of the governments. Now, that's a very nice idea, but we know that, uh, you know, not only it's very difficult to get there, but we are also, look around the Arab world, the road to try to get to more democracy, it's not an easy road. It's certainly, a, the, it's a road that entails a lot of conflict. So that very frankly, I don't see the you know, the possibility in practice of trying to, or of such a comprehensive solution. When, or I, we're, I, we're actually out of time. Can you ask, ask it offline if, if there's time? Uh, yes, uh, my name is oh. <laughs> Okay, I guess, <laughs> go ahead, please, sorry. And uh, from Georgetown University. And I have been following uh, Professor uh, Ambassador Lyman's comments in the Gulf Times and the Peninsula. And I can't help but to ask you about the mediation uh, of Darfur and Qatar. What do you think Qatar is doing right in terms of theoretical <coughs> mediation in comparison to the overall right. scope of? Uh, it, 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 Qatar, has been, Qatar has been running, it's now more or less finished, uh, for over two years ran a, a peace process just on Darfur. And it resulted in an agreement with just one group in the government, and a relatively small group, the Liberty and Justice Movement. Uh, but Qatar has put a lot of weight behind it. Uh, it's part of a, a very proactive Qatar foreign policy all around the, the Middle East. Uh, and they've w been willing to put a lot of resources behind it. And I, in, you know, I think they feel they are making a major contribution to peace in Darfur and, and uh, an issue that was you know, of great international attention. Actually, if you look at the, the agreement itself, it's not a bad agreement. But A, only the LGM signed on to it. Mini Manawi's group, uh, Abdul Wahid's group, Jem didn't sign on to it. That's a problem. And second, the, the key is the implementation. Is it really going to be, is there going to be a land commission, a human rights commission? Is there going to be results? It's too early to even know. But uh, I give the Qataris credit for an enormous commitment and investment in the process. But I think it's it's too early to know. And we've all said if this was implemented, it would be a good agreement. But I think we're all struggling to see whether, in fact, it can be. And you have to give the Qataris credit. They're, they're willing to put up resources behind it. 
We have run out of time, unfortunately. Uh, Ambassador Lyman, Ambassador Goody, thank you so much for uh, joining us and sharing your firsthand uh, insights. And please join me in thanking all of our panelists today for their comments. <laughs>